Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today we're talking about the anatomy of a gunfight. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. What the fuck does anatomy of a gunfight mean? Well, anatomy of a gunfight, you know, if you think about anatomy when it relates to human beings, you know, the anatomy of a human being, you have to understand the anatomy and how it breaks down in order to repair, to fix, to develop and evolve science when it comes to the human body. So the anatomy of a gunfight includes all the particular elements of a gunfight, and then we could break those particulars down and then figure out what we need to be to be successful and then what the future looks like. So it's like a scientific approach, identifying quantifiables, points of performance and measurement, and then building on that. So I'm looking forward to this episode. You know, I, I talk about gunfighting as the tactical, practical application to handling firearms and defense. Um, and it's something that I'm passionate about because it's what I do for a living. I teach uh, the anatomy of a gunfight. You know, I teach a homeland security course that's ran in California and San Luis Obispo. And I contract for the Department of Homeland Security teaching this counterterrorism program. And my little sliver of this pie with a lot of great dudes is teaching tactics related to firearms, related to pistol, especially. So again, looking forward to this episode, we're going to talk about, you know, the anatomy of gunfight. We're going to talk statistics, you know, your most likely statistical probability of what's going to happen in a gunfight. You know, I'm going to talk about what happens under stress. I talk about this in a few other podcasts, but especially in the realm of an actual gunfight of people pulling firearms, we'll talk specifics about what happens under stressful conditions and what your body does. Also, I'll give you my training recommendations on what I teach in these counterterrorism courses for law enforcement to do in order to survive a gunfight. Also, I'll answer a question that I got from Instagram. That's a good question. And we'll talk some book recommendations and close it out. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. By the end of this, hopefully you have a better understanding of the difference between flat range training and tactically applied training. So let's kick this thing off. All right. So we talked a little bit about the anatomy of a gunfight and what it kind of means. You know, when you look at a gunfight in its totality, right? It's almost like a fight. If you look at a UFC fight, for example, and it takes place in an octagon, you got two people, one against each other, and there's specific things that they do in order to combat each other. They ground and pound. They look for that top mount. They look for that choke. They have technical aspects, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's stand-up, their physique, their strength and conditioning, their agility. All these factors take place and are culminated in this event. Well, if you look at the anatomy of a gunfight, it's similar to this octagon format, right? You have a lot of variables, but generally there's indicators or there's specific things that happen that remain the same. And because it is that way, you could take all those specific things that statistically happen and you can kind of measure them and quantify them. That allows you to take it and isolate them and train on them but it also gives you a better picture of the understanding of what happens and takes place, why people live, why people die, why people are successful. 
And it gives you this pattern of trends that steers you in the right direction in order for you to be successful. You know, we'll talk a little bit about that during my training recommendations, but the anatomy of a gunfight by definition is specifically focusing on the things that matter in order to survive. All right, so let's talk about statistical probabilities. I use this term statistical probabilities because, you know, statistics are a way in which we definitively look at different scenarios, different events that don't have quantifiable measurements. And when you define these statistics, you could scientifically, quantifiably understand what's happening. And it also gives you a unit of measure to be able to train. Some of my favorite statistics to use are the FBI statistics because the FBI is looking vastly across the United States and looking at particular data points that's accrued from individual cities and counties from law enforcement officers. Now, obviously, this isn't the end all be all. This isn't the end state. And you should look at other variables and other inputs, particularly inputs from the military, right? Most military organizations don't generate statistics. I remember one of my combat rotations in 2007 in Iraq, we were going out every night and we were doing raids against HVTs. And I had a good buddy, Jason, who was annotating statistics on everything that we were doing. So at the end of the rotation, we had pie charts, we had you know, spreadsheets of everybody's actions, how many people each person killed, how many gunfights we've been, how many of those were attributed to close air support versus small arms. And it was a good database for accruing information. And that's not routinely done. You know, that's one individual special operations guy doing it for the better of the institution. Well, you need to take some of this knowledge that's taken from the military. And I'm obviously biased because of this, but hear me out. I mean, if a special operations soldier goes downrange and he's targeting high value targets and he's in a targeting cell that executes these raids or these hostage rescues, he's going to do raids every night. And he's going to, on a sharp learning curve, learn in one night what some departments take decades to learn. You know, if he goes out and he does a hostage rescue, for example, and they go in and they kill a whole bunch of bad guys, but they do it a breach, they get in a gunfight, they take a casualty, they evacuate the casualty, they have to exfil, they take incoming fire during the exfil, they move to a remote helicopter landing zone, but the helicopter can't land, they have to do it by vehicle. I mean, think about the amount of lessons learned and information that takes place in one mission on one night that happens almost nightly for special operations versus law enforcement takes decades. You know, pulling your gun and getting a, in a gunfight isn't that rare for law enforcement officers in major cities, but more rural cities, it's obviously less rare. And special operations, pulling a gun and getting a gunfight is kind of ordinary depending on the unit that you're in. So accrue the information, accrue the data points from all different perspectives when looking at analyzing how would you affect or how you would react in a gunfight. Another important aspect is when you look at these gunfights, you have to understand the veracity of the threat that's presented. For example, if a guy pulls a knife and it's seen as an imminent threat versus a guy pulls an AK-47, there's different inputs, right? And there's different ways in which you would react. You know, let's say there's a guy who's 50 meters away and he has an AK-47 with 
a few thousand feet per second of muzzle velocity coming out the front of his weapon system, he's a direct threat to you and you're behind the power curve if you just have a pistol. Well, that kind of gunfight is going to be different than a gunfight in close proximity. So, you know, generally we're going to talk about generally the highest statistical probability in a gunfight. Some of those characteristics are as follows. One, the gunfight is going to take place within approximately 20 feet. Statistically, most law enforcement officers or law enforcement tacticians will tell you that most of these gunfights take place within this distance. 20 feet is not a lot of distance when looking at a pistol gunfight. So generally speaking, I'm talking about close proximity gunfights. Another characteristic is I'm talking about gun on gun. You could obviously find yourself in an imminent threat, dangerous situation where a guy pulls a knife and he's close proximity. But generally, I'm talking about two people with guns, right? So you have an equal threat depending on the distance. But let's say he's 10 feet away. That's just equal as a threat if he's five feet away with a pistol or a handgun. Another characteristic is that the gunfight is going to take place in an urban or rural environment where there are man-made and natural features. We get into this weird false sense of security because we practice real-life scenarios on a flat range where there are no obstacles. Typically, there are no cars. Typically, there is no cover and concealment. Well, when I talk about this gunfights and a, the anatomy of it, I'm talking particularly in a real-life situation, in a real-life environment where there are obstacles. Let me share some interesting statistics with you guys from 2012. You know, in 2012, the FBI collected assault data from about 12,000 law enforcement agencies that employed around 520,000 officers. These officers provided service to more than 247 million people, and that's about 80% of the nation's population. In 2012, based on this, around 52,900 officers were assaulted. And of that 52,000, 14,000 sustained injuries. 29% of the officers who were attacked with personal weapons, either hands, fists, or feet, suffered injuries. 13% of the officers who were assaulted with knives or cutting instruments were injured. And 9.8% or 10% of officers who were attacked with firearms were injured. 23.9% of officers who were attacked with other dangerous weapons were also injured. Now, what stands out about that data should be the fact that only about 10% of those that were assaulted with firearms were injured. Now, what I didn't tell you is that this is all based off the distance between three and zero feet, meaning close proximity attacks. An assumption could be that if you're in a close proximity attack, you're more likely to be injured with fist over a firearm because you have the ability to stop that attack or close the distance and stop that attack. An important imperative that's taught in special operations is if you find yourself in a situation where you're outside of that three feet and you're going to go hands-on and you don't have the upper hand with a firearm, then you're better off closing the distance and getting on top of that person and managing them. And I agree with that. If you go to draw a gun and the person's within reaching distance, you know, three feet is reaching distance, and they could do that instantaneously, really before you have the ability to get to your gun, then you're at a huge disadvantage as opposed to breaking contact, creating distance and going to that gun or creating space and going to that gun, which is a much safer option. Some other interesting statistics is that looking at the overview of officers killed in 2012, 44 officers were killed with firearms, 32 with handguns. That's a lot of handguns. However, out of that 
total, only seven officers total fired their weapons, and two additional officers attempted to use their weapons. 24 of the officers killed with firearms were within five feet from the offenders. So think about that. 24 of the officers killed with firearms were within five feet. So this this magic window, right? Within three feet, there's only 10% that were even injured. But within five feet, 24 of all the officers killed, which was 44 officers, 24 of 44 were killed within five feet from the offender. Combining the data of the officers who fired their weapons with the data of the distance the officers were killed at what seemed to indicate to be slain in a shooting rather than a gunfight, meaning that the person who was an imminent threat shot and killed them as opposed to them having the opportunity to draw. Remember, if you go back to that, I only said that seven officers fired their weapons and two tried to fire their weapons. So nine total, nine total out of 44 attempted to fight back. Now, this is a damning statistic. This tells us that most police officers who are killed are killed by surprise, meaning they don't have enough time to get to their firearm. Only two, only two tried to attempt to get to their gun. And only seven officers fired their weapons. Only seven out of the 44 that were killed in 2012. So situational awareness, right? Situational awareness in itself is going to be a podcast on its own. Situational awareness is the biggest and the most important characteristic in your daily, everyday routine, especially when it comes to being prepared, being a survivalist. I tell police officers when I'm training law enforcement, especially SWAT guys, when they're entering a room and they're clearing uh, spaces, that the bad guys have the upper hand. If they want to surprise a good guy, then all they have to do is hide in the dead space, hide in the kitty corners, hide in the spaces where they don't think they're going to be discovered, where they can ambush the good guys. It's too easy. I've actually witnessed in warfare the advancement of the tactics, techniques, and procedures of bad guys and seen how easy it was for them to set up ambushes on us in convoys, set up ambushes on thresholds when entering a building. It's not hard to kill good guys, right? They have the advantage as bad guys. That's an alarming statistic to think about. So for the guys that were, you know, had the upper hand, who had the situation awareness, and they were able to fight at a specific distance, what were some statistics? All right, so let's talk about zero to five feet. And, you know, I have the statistical data from 03 to 2012. So from zero to five feet, there was a total of 234 police officers killed. Now that's from 03 to 2012, 234 total from zero to five feet. Six to 10 feet, there was 86 killed. Again, this is 2003 to 2012. From 11 to 20 feet, 71 were killed. From 21 to 50 feet, 32 were killed. And from over 50 feet, 30 were killed. So it's rarest, obviously, outside of 50 feet to be killed as a police officer. 21 to 50 feet, it's the second rarest. And it gets higher as you get closer to the proximity. From 11 to 20 feet, it's 71 Six to 10 feet again, it's 86. And then from zero to five, 234 were killed. Going back to 2012, the statistics, 
there were 24 total officers killed within five feet. Remember, I gave you originally gave you that zero to three feet, but zero to five feet is another bracket that is substantial. You're more likely to be killed within five feet, you know, five to really three feet than you are any other. And you could equate this really to the distance in which you're in close proximity to somebody. You know, if a police officer confronts somebody, they're standing on top of them or they're standing near them and they're questioning them. You can almost determine that distance is a distance in which you would talk to somebody. So if you're within proximity to vocalize or to communicate, then you're within that killing distance. Now, that's pretty scary to think about as a law enforcement officer because from zero to five feet, and most of the officers that I train, I train them in close proximity, but within 20 feet. It is very easy, especially with a pistol, to align a firearm and shoot and be successful within five feet. You can almost be blindfolded. So it's really a matter of who's got better situation awareness and who's faster. It's not even a matter of accuracy. It's just a matter of alignment. Again, these are statistics that, that I hope sink in. I hope I said it right. If not, please go back and listen to them again so you can understand the most important and critical elements and characteristics of a gunfight. These will also help you with the training methodology and help validate my training methodology for the training portion that we're going to get to in a little bit. All right, so we covered a lot of the probabilities. You know, I use law enforcement officers as an example, but let's talk about what happens under stress physiologically. You know, stress is one of those things that you could have happen to you really at any time, but it affects you the same way. So the stress that you face in your everyday life is the same exact stress that you get when you're in a gunfight. There's just different levels of it. You know, I use the analogy of skydiving, for example. When you skydive, when you jump out of an airplane for the first time, it's completely unnatural, obviously, for you to exit the back of an aircraft and fall from the aircraft to the ground. It goes against all your survival mechanics and mechanisms intended for you to survive. So what typically happens is because you have so much adrenaline and so much cortisol dumping in your body, you get some standard doses and physiological changes that you would see in any kind of stress. Number one, you get auditory exclusion, which means you start to not hear things that are happening around you. Number two, you start to get tunnel vision, meaning you're only focused, hyper-focused on the task at hand. You know, I remember falling and kind of looking at my altimeter, but not really seeing it because I was kind of detached. I wasn't really conscious and aware of what was going on. I remember looking down and seeing the ground rush towards me, which enhanced this feeling. And I remember getting on the ground after landing and the instructor said, how was that jump? How'd that feel? And I remember looking at him going, I don't really remember anything. I mean, it was just kind of this blur. But as I continued to jump and as I continued to get more comfortable, there was less adrenaline. And during that, I started to open up my vision. I started to hear things. I started to see things that were different that I hadn't recognized before. So when you're under stress and you're experiencing a physiological change, you make mistakes. In training, I tell people that if for the first time that they react to something and it's outside of their comfort zone, they're going to revert back to their training methodologies. They're going to go back to their immediate action training processes or muscle memory, and they're going to only be able to use gross motor skills, not fine motor skills. So all the things that they 
you know, practiced and rehearsed, if it wasn't muscle memory and it wasn't committed to muscle memory, they weren't going to revert back to that when shit hit the fan. Another thing to realize is under stress, it's going to change the way in which you understand and perceive what's happening. You know, there's people who talk about or reflect about a stressful situation and they say things slow down. Things seem like they were moving in slow motion. I started getting hyper vigilant. I could hear pins drop and I could hear, you know, people breathe. And all these things are intended in order for you to survive this fight or flight response. The problem is the way in which we're, we're designed to survive this fight or flight is within nature, within our genetic understanding and evolved understanding of surviving an attack. So for example, if our intended survival mechanism is used to defend our organs, right? Under duress that, you know, the blood flows to my organs and not to my eyes, not to my ears, not to my hands, or I don't have the ability to use conscious clarity and I can't think because I'm in a state of mental shock. Well, that's why I tell law enforcement that the things that they train, the things that they do will give them this confidence, this resiliency, which I talk about in survival, that it will allow them to revert back and be successful in reacting accordingly during the time in which they have to fight for their lives. Let's talk about my training recommendations. All right, so I told you guys that I teach this counterterrorism course and I teach specifically surviving a gunfight. All right, so the first thing I'd like to do is I bring everybody around me. I introduce myself and then I get hot on the range and demonstrate exactly what I want them to do. The first thing I do is debunk all these fundamentals of marksmanship that have been instilled and crossed over into gunfighting. You know, I look at pistol marksmanship, for example, to be different than tactical gunfighting. You know, the same mechanics that you use in marksmanship aren't necessarily the same mechanics that you use in a gunfight. The fundamentals of marksmanship are inherently important as the foundation, but how you apply them to gunfighting is completely different. For example, stance. Do you really need to stand in any stance and position in order to fire a firearm? Is that how the real life is going to be? For example, have you ever been told on a flat range, hey, you need to stand in a stance like you're in a fight and you need to lean forward and you need to be in a combat stance? There's no such thing as a fucking combat stance. What you need to do is stand erect. You need to learn how to stand with your right foot up, your left foot up, like you're climbing a ladder, like you're moving down a ladder, like you're under a car, like you're on top of a car, like you're inside of a car, like you're seated. I mean, think about it. In real life, how you'll get into a gunfight. Will it be on your feet? Who knows? Optimally, in an ideal world, you obviously want that, but it's not guaranteed. So don't restrict your movements or your stance and train that way, thinking that's the only way you're going to get in a gunfight. What I'll literally do is I'll stand there on one foot and I'll shoot a target within 10 feet and I'll hit the air zone and with different stances, showing him that stance is an important fundamental in a gunfight. I also look at grip, and I talk about grip and say, hey, is grip an important fundamental of a gunfight? Is it an imperative, meaning does it have to be there in order for you to succeed? And it doesn't. I could hold the gun with my right hand, my left hand. I flip the gun upside down and shoot. It doesn't have to be held with either 
in that close proximity distance for you to center punch or in order to destroy or defeat an imminent threat. Another thing I'd look at is front sight focus, which is also a fundamental of marksmanship. You don't have to have front sight focus in order for you to hit a target. One of the things that one of the students said this last class that I taught last week, they said it's a flash sight and it's, it's true. You know, I call it reflexive shooting. You know, some people call it point shooting, but it's getting a flash sight picture of your rear and your front sight that's overlaid in between your eyes and your target. Imagine like, you know, X-Men, they have this uncanny vision coming out of some of the characters where you could see the laser coming out of their eyes to the target. Imagine that's your field of view, right? And that's what you see in focus. Well, if you have target focus, the only thing you have to do is align the firearm or the pistol in the proximity of that tunnel of vision and pull the trigger. So in my demonstration on the range, I just take and I have front sight focus. I take it off of front sight focus. I lower the firearm and I take shots and they're in the A zone. And again, you don't have to have that front sight focus in order to be successful. So you get the idea, right? The idea is the fundamentals of marksmanship are different from the fundamentals of gunfighting. What is the most important fundamental of gunfighting? For me, when I teach, I teach alignment. Alignment is the number one priority and number one most important fundamental in a gunfight. If you're on your ass, if you're on your side, if you're under a car, if you're inside of a car, if you're anywhere in proximity to a threat and you need to destroy that threat, the only thing you need in order to index your body is alignment. You need to be able to move your body towards that target and align the weapon system in that portal of vision with your body or with your hand or with your arm. And I say with your body, your hand or your arm because you might be in a position where you can't get proper alignment squared with two hands. You know, two hands, a strong hand and a support hand on a firearm, specifically a pistol, is very important, but it's not an imperative. If you're driving along in your car and a threat presents itself off the passenger side of your car and you have to pick the firearm up and move it to the target, the only thing you need is your hand and your arm to be aligned in that portal of vision, right? If the same thing happens and it's on your weak side, let's say your left side, the only thing you have to do is pull it across your face and now you have the weapon pointed. I used to teach in Colorado kids how to shoot. And when I would teach these kids, the best students were typically young girls because they didn't talk back like young boys. They listened intently and then they replicated the same exact thing that I told them to do again and again and again. And I could teach these little girls to point shoot targets or just align their body and align the firearm to the target and hit targets out to 15 to 25 meters, depending on the situation. Think about that. The only thing I'm teaching you to do is point your finger, basic eye-hand coordination at something, which is a target in this case, and pull the trigger to trust that instinct. So when I teach this counterterrorism course, that's what I focus on in the beginning is alignment, debunking the fundamentals and aligning the pistol and trusting that instinct to press. One thing that I talked about in the stress of a situation is that you're going to do things that you wouldn't typically do in a normal situation. The way in which you react, you tap into gross motor skills that are muscle memory are what you're going to revert back to immediately. 
Let's say you're in a situation where you're fighting for your life and you're getting to your gun and it's you versus them. They're fighting to get to their gun. You're fighting to get to your gun. Well, whoever pulls and aligns the fastest is going to win. I teach law enforcement. I teach mill. I teach civilians and I use UTM or airsoft guns. These training munitions that fire, you know, whether it's a universal training munition or it's an actual airsoft BB, you're pointing and shooting. If there's an imminent threat and it's you against him, do you think you're going to wait to get front sight alignment? Do you think you're going to wait for your eye to get to the front sight? On average, it takes about two tenths to half a second for your eye to get front sight focus. The average reaction time is about 0 0.25, 0 0.20 and below for fast shooters. So think about that. It takes me two tenths of a second to pull the trigger. And it takes me double that in order to get front sight focus. Your eye, it's almost like a mechanical thing, right? Because it has to transition from the depth of field being far away on the target to the front sight. Well, that takes time. It typically takes half a second. So are you going to wait that half a second in order to get that first shot on target? You're not. And I've seen it in so many training scenarios and I've actually done it in real life. I actually came across a bad guy when I was in Iraq. And he was hiding and he was hiding behind a door. And when he was behind that door and I had to use deadly force, I didn't wait. I started pressing on him and giving that dude the gas prior to even me getting an acquired sight picture because I knew that my gun was aligned. I knew it was pointing in a safe direction. I knew it was aligned with his chest and I was going to press and evolve. And what I mean by evolve is I was going to get to my sight at some point. Before I got to my front sight, at any point, he was already dead. But think about that in the context of the statistics that I gave you. Most police officers die within three to five feet during a gunfight. Do you think I need to wait for front sight alignment? I don't. What I need to do is get alignment, period, press, and then evolve. Concentrate on evolving through the gunfight, evolving through the process to get to my front sight. Now, remember, that gunfight might have started was suppression because he was at a, a certain distance. Let's say he's at 20 feet. Well, yeah, optimally, I want to have a good alignment, but I'm not going to wait for that front sight alignment. I'm going to start pressing as soon as I know my bore is pointed in his direction. You know, we're not talking about you having the upper hand in the situation. We're not talking about you draw and you get on him before he gets on you. We're talking about the worst case scenario of you having to fight for your life where time and accuracy are the most important elements. One of the things I want to stress, because this is my training recommendation, obviously, one of the things I want to stress is that I'm not teaching people to point shoot targets. What I'm teaching them to do is align the flash sight picture of the rear and front sights onto the target and then press, trust it, and then press the trigger. This is the same fundamental that IPSC and IDPA shooters use on targets in close proximity. They don't wait to get front sight focus on an array of targets where have multiple engagements. And they're transitioning from target to target. You know, shooting is a visual game. When you see the target and you align your bore within that field of that vision, you don't need to wait in order to have decent accuracy at certain distances. You snap the gun into that position, you get that alignment, and then you get the overlay and you press as soon as you can. One thing to do to practice this is take a target at a certain distance, draw on the target as fast as you can. Don't take the shot, draw on it get your alignment within your field of view. 
then get your front sight in focus and see what the difference is to better get your natural point of aim. You know, this alignment concept comes from my time as a sniper in special operations where we focus on your natural point of aim. Let's say you have a target at a set distance. Let's say that distance is beyond 500 meters. Well, when you get down and you get behind your gun, you want a natural point of aim where your scope within your reticle, within your field of view, within your optic, you could see the, the target. Because if you get down and you find the, the target because you've manipulated your body, then you're shooting in a stress position. You want to have a natural position, which is called a natural point of aim, in order to not have any negative inputs or negative variables in that shooting evolution. So when looking at, at doing the same thing standing up, the only thing you're doing is teaching yourself through muscle memory to align with a target and draw strong hand, weak hand, two hands to that target, indexing on it, and then reconfirming with that flash sight picture of where your sights are at generally and then pressing. And that's what's going to save your life with the caveat of once you start that sequence or that evolution of that gunfight, that you concentrate on telling yourself to go consciously go and get your eyesight to focus on that front sight or that EOTech or that red dot. 99% of the time, by the time you get to that, the target's already going to be destroyed and have holes in the A zone. All right, so closing out on that, you know, if you guys are interested in that concept or that training philosophy, you know, I got a gunfighter's carbine course where I apply these same fundamentals. You know, it's pistol, carbine, shotgun, long gun. It doesn't matter. Most of these fundamentals remain the same. So that gunfighter's carbine course is in Fernley, Nevada on 25 March. You can go to philcraftsurvival.com and check it out. It's a good carbine course. You know, it's we shoot nothing but BCM, but I'll have a whole bunch of different BCM rifles out there that you could try out. And also it's a good time on a range facility because we have an awesome facility with varied terrain and you'll get different distances. So look at philcraftsurvival.com in the store under the 2017 courses and sign up if you want. All right, guys. So at this time, I'm going to answer one IG question that I got. It's a pretty interesting question and, and I wanted to answer it because I wanted everybody to get benefit of the answer. You know, I know a lot of my followers are, you know, listening to this and they're, they're potential recruits for special operations period. And that makes me proud. And I, I love giving guys advice on the military and going into special operations. This guy asked a question. He's talking to a National Guard recruiter on the Rep 63 option in Colorado. So it's the Rep 63 slash 18 x-ray programs. He's a little bit older. He's 29 years old. He asked, while I have an advanced education and can pursue an officer route, I've come to understand the enlisted route to be the best and most direct route forward. I'm hoping you could share any advice you would have for those of us who are older than the average individual enlisting in the Army. Any advice on how to use maturity and life experiences to our benefit? I'm sure you went through with this and know guys who went through selection into the 30s and 40s, perhaps. Any personal experience or tips you've acquired over the years? Thanks for your service. Please keep it the good work on the podcast. Appreciate number one, Eric, for you know supporting us. And I appreciate those that have supported us, especially when it comes to this kind of stuff. I will tell you that 29 years old, you are at the prime. Anybody in their late 20s and 30s are at the prime of their physical capabilities. You know, you've reached muscle maturity. You know, your stamina, your physical fitness is not going to get any better than being in your late 20s and, and 30s. There's some things, obviously, as a youngin that you would benefit from, 
But when it comes to endurance, most endurance athletes, triathletes, marathon runners are actually in their 30s and 40s. I tell people of this all the time. When I had a special forces team in Texas, one of my National Guard guys on my detachment was in his 40s when he graduated the qualification course. And he's a stud, but he's not a, a super specimen. Great guy, solid attitude, but he was just fit. And he got through it because he prepared. I will tell you that, you know, having life experience is an asset to the regiment or to special forces. That's what special operations wants. You know, because in special forces, specifically when you travel overseas and you're at war, you're in remote areas, you have to be more mature, number one. But number two, because you're responsible for planning and procuring your own resources, it's very important to have people with life experience that are good at, you know, critical decision making, good at thinking outside the box, good at, you know, having an imagination, good at being disciplined and having a mature outlook on life. You know, just because a guy's a stud in special operations, just because he could physically get through something, doesn't mean he's the right guy or the right candidate for the job. I will tell you that in special forces, my best guys were the guys who had life experience before the military, or they were in the military for an extended period of time and had good life experience that they experienced as a small unit leader in the army. So, you know, I'll tell you, Stick to what you're doing. I know Eric specifically has a doctorate degree. That education is important when applied to special forces. We're not just looking for studs. We're looking for intellects who could think at a higher level strategically and they could bring something to the game tactically when shit hits the fan. I hope that helped, Eric. I will tell you that based on this episode, On Killing, On Combat by Grossman, uh, it's a great book. You know, both great books that have a lot of statistics in them but also good on the psychology of stress and the psychology of gunfights. I will talk more about the subject because it's a passionate subject. It's also a subject that needs to be talked about more to get people in the right state of mind and to get the latest and greatest of what's happening in the trends and the statistics of gunfights as bad guys evolve. As bad guys evolve and their tactics change, we also need to do the same thing. At this time, I'd like to welcome Kurt one of our tactical trainers. You guys might've seen him on social media. His social media handle on Instagram is Kurt underscore team Philcraft. But Kurt was a sniper special forces buddy of mine who I grew up with in special operations, seen a lot of combat, done a lot of great things, great American and talented special forces soldier. And I'm proud to have him on our team and he's going to be running training full time for Philcraft. Big shout out to Kurt. If you haven't followed him, please go on his Instagram and follow him and and there'll be more to follow with Kurt. Guys, this is it. If you have any question, please feel free to hit us up at media at philcraftsurvival.com. Also, again, you can find us on philcraftsurvival.com and check us out on Instagram at soft survivor, SOF survivor, or at philcraftsurvival. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive.